My name is Josh Miller, and I'm the lead pastor here at Center Church. And if you're a guest with us this morning, I just want to give you a special welcome and say we're really glad that you're here. If you didn't get a chance to stop by our first-time guest tent on the way in, we would love to connect with you after the service uh, to give you a small gift to say thanks for joining us and to learn a little bit more about you so that we can follow up with you this week. So we have been walking through the first 11 chapters of the first book of the Bible called Genesis. And these 11 chapters have some of the most famous stories of the Bible and often some of the most misunderstood stories of the Bible. Stories that um, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard before, but if you're anything like me, you probably didn't quite understand. You knew some of the characters, but you didn't know why they were important. And what we're doing in Genesis chapter 11 is we're forming the basis of a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview. Because what you find in the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the major characters and themes which run throughout all of Scripture. So by understanding the first part of the first book of the Bible, you actually are better equipped to understand all of the Bible. And today we're going to talk about something that is uh, deeply personal to me and I think will be very relatable to you. And to help you understand why, I need you to take you back in time a little bit uh, in my own story. So it was the fall of 2010. And I had graduated from college the previous spring and started my first job as an assistant football coach at my alma mater. In college, I thrived. I mean, honestly, I thrived academically, socially, spiritually. I loved my college experience. And I just sort of assumed that that would just continue when I graduated from college. I thought, I would, you know, I don't know, I guess I'm just awesome, right? So it'll just, it'll just keep going. Well, welcome to your humble pastor, right? It'll just, it'll just keep going well. I just assumed it would. And yet here I was uh, the fall after I graduated in my very first real job, and I was lost. I mean, I was floundering. I didn't know what was wrong, but I definitely wasn't thriving like I had in college. And I wonder if some of you can relate with me this morning about that feeling. Maybe you just went through a major life transition. Maybe you just moved or changed jobs. Maybe you just graduated from college and you're in your first job like I was. Maybe you just went through a breakup. Whatever it is, life has changed. And there was a time that you look back to and you're like, man, we, I seem to be or we seem to be doing really well back then, and yet somehow we're, it's just not working right now. I, you know, maybe you're not in like a crisis situation, but you're just not thriving in the way that you know you could be and, and you long to again. And if that's true of you, if you can relate with that, then what we're going to talk about today is going to be really, really helpful for you. Because today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we meet Adam and Eve, the very first human beings. And we learn that God created Adam and Eve. But we learn not only that God, that God created Adam and Eve, but we, created, but we understand why God created Adam and Eve. You see, Genesis 2 is going to explain the purposes for which God created Adam and Eve, and by implication, all of us. I wasn't living in line with the purposes that we find in Genesis 2 when I graduated from college. And that was one of the big reasons why I wasn't thriving. And that might be the reason that you're not thriving today. It might be that there are three purposes that are weaved into the fabric of creation, weaved into what it means to be human, that are missing from your life, and that might be why you just can't get traction right now. But the good news is that by looking at Genesis 2, we're going to learn what those purposes are and how you can start living into them again. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up or turn it on and go to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. 
And I'm going to walk us through the verses of Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to draw out these three purposes, okay? So we're going to walk through the text, and I'm going to show you these three purposes. So here we go. Verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see that phrase, these are the generations? So that's an introductory phrase. It's used 10 different times in the book of Genesis, and its purpose is to indicate for you that a new part of the story is starting. So it's a little bit like a chapter division in a book. So what that phrase tells us is that we're about to transition out of Genesis 1, which is kind of a 10,000-foot view of creation, whose main character is God, and we're going to transition into Genesis 2, which is a boots-on-the-ground narration of the creation of Adam and Eve. So if Genesis 1 was mostly about God, Genesis 2 introduces us to the main supporting characters of the Bible, which are mankind, Adam and Eve. Verse 5 through 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So verse 4 tells us, hey, a new part of this story is starting. And then verses 5 through 7 set the scene. Verses 5 through 7 say, hey, this is what was going on in creation at that point. And notice, we're going to come back to this, notice how intimately involved the Lord was in the formation of Adam. So it says that he, he literally used his hands to, to, to put Adam together out of dust. Verse 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So verses 8 through 9 tell us that God not only created Adam, but he also created a place for Adam to live. So away in the east, God planted a garden in a region called Eden. So fun fact, it's not actually the Garden of Eden, it's the garden in Eden. So Eden was, Eden was a region of the world. And God planted this incredible garden in Eden. And the text tells us that there were trees there of, of all different kinds, trees that were beautiful, trees that produced delicious food. And God uh, placed Adam in the middle of this garden. But what's even more interesting is that the text says that God placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and, uh, and evil in the garden. So what, what the author is trying to tell us is that this wasn't any, any old garden. This wasn't just one of many gardens that God had, but this was the center of God's creation. God created this beautiful garden in the center of his creation, and he put the tree of life there and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he put Adam there. So God created Adam to live in the very center of his creation. Verses 10 through 14 a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So these verses tell us a little bit more about the garden. So apparently this garden was planted around an incredible source of subterranean water, right? So water bubbled up in this garden. So the garden was, 
was flourishing. It was well-watered, and then it flowed out of this garden through Eden and then divided into four other major rivers of the ancient world. And the author goes on to tell us, and, you know, this one created the boundary of this land, and there's gold there, and this one created the boundary of this land, and there's other things there that I had to use Google to learn how to pronounce, and there, you know, all these different things. So the point of verse 10 through 14 is it's describing this incredible garden. You see, it wasn't only beautiful. It wasn't only flourishing. It wasn't only full of food, but it was also a point from which you could go and explore all of creation. You could get on the river and you could, you could float down the river and you could see all of the land all around, but you could always find your way back to the garden. Why? Because that's where all the water came from. So if you were lost, if Adam, if Adam was out there exploring and trying to find some gold or whatever, if he could find a creek, he could trace the creek back to a stream, he could trace the stream back to a river, he could trace, trace the river back to the garden. So the idea is that God put Adam in the center of his creation with a desire that he would go all over creation but always find his way back to the garden. Verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So when God placed Adam in the garden, he gave him a job to do and a command to keep. A job to do and a command to keep. His job was to work and to keep the garden. And he was permitted to eat from every tree in the garden, all the trees bearing wonderful, delicious fruit. He was even permitted to eat from the tree of life. So you get the indication that Adam, Adam had access not only to an incredible, an incredible paradise, but also to, to life everlasting. He could continually eat from this tree of life. But God gave him one command, and he said, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, the consequence will be your death. Verses 18 through 20. Then the Lord God said... It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord observed that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And so he brought every living creature before Adam to see if any of them would be a suitable helper. But none was found. Certainly not a cat and not even a dog, okay? So, I mean, the cat didn't even get in the lineup. You know, it's just like you're not going to work. But not even a dog. There was nothing that was found to be a suitable helper for Adam. So this is what happens next. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So because no suitable helper was found in all of creation, God decided to create a new being, the very first woman. And when God presented Eve, the very first woman, to Adam, Adam burst into song. Verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see, Genesis 2 narrates that God created Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. But it also teaches us why he created them. It teaches us three purposes for man and woman that held true for them in the Garden of Eden and hold true for us today. And our ability to understand those and start to live within those in our life 
is a big part of how we thrive. It won't fix every problem that you have, but if these three purposes start to be true in your life, it will get you started to that place that you long to be in. So what are those purposes? Well, here you go. Here's purpose number one. You ready? You were created to put down roots. Purpose number one, you were created to put down roots. If you pay careful attention to this chapter, you'll notice that the author spends a lot of time describing the place that God made for Adam and Eve to live. A third of the verses, a third of the verses are devoted not to Adam and Eve or even to God, but to the place that God created. A beautiful garden with rivers running out of it through the whole region that God placed Adam to live in. You see, the importance of place runs throughout all of Genesis and the rest of the Bible. In Genesis 2, what we just read, we see that God created a beautiful garden at the center of the world, and that is where he placed Adam and Eve to live. In Genesis 3, the consequence of Adam and Eve's disobedience of, and their sin is that they had to leave the place that God created for them to live. In Genesis 12, God initiates a new relationship with a man named Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. And a huge part of that relationship is that God promised Abraham that he would give him a land for his descendants. That's Genesis 12. Genesis 13 through 36 narrates Abraham's family's exploits in the land that God promised one day to give them. Genesis 37 through 50 tells you how Abraham's family left that place and ended up enslaved in Egypt. The book of Exodus is all about God rescuing his people out of Egypt. Why? So that he could bring them to the promised place that he had, he had promised to Abraham. The books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy narrate how Abraham's family is commanded to live in the place that God is going to place them. And then the book of Joshua narrates how they actually took possession of the promised land. The rest of the Old Testament is a picture of Israel refusing to live according to God's covenant and as a result being taken into exile, out of the place that they were promised. And then in Nehemiah, we see that God restores a portion of his people back to the place where he had promised. Most of the Old Testament has something to do with the place that God promises his people. This same theme is picked up in the New Testament, but with a little bit of a twist. You see, in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are not looking forward to a geographic location somewhere in the Middle East, but we are looking forward to a place prepared for us in heaven. We're still looking forward to a place, it's just not a place here geographically. And until that time comes, until we reach that final resting place, Jesus called us to love our neighbors, well, a neighbor is defined by place. Someone is your neighbor if they live in the same place as you. The apostle Peter called us to honor everyone, particularly those that were in our community. And the apostle Paul told us to do good to everyone, particularly those in our community. As I hope you can see from our little trip through the Bible there, place is a big deal. Place matters. You see, in the Bible, if you move every two years, if you're in one place and the next place, they call that being nomadic, and it's usually judgment, right? Like Israel was judged for not following God's promise and going into the promised land, and they had to be nomads for 40 years in the wilderness. The problem is that in our culture, what the Bible calls judgment is what most of us call normal, right? In the Bible, if you moved all the time and you never put down roots and you never had a place that was 
That was indication that life wasn't how it was supposed to be. It wasn't how we were created. And yet, for most of us, that is normative. Right? That is normative. If we are unwilling to put down roots and call a place home, we're not going to thrive the way that God created us to thrive. Because all the way back in Genesis 2, God created you for a place. I didn't put down roots when I graduated from college. Right? I just didn't do it. I didn't know anything about my town. I didn't become a regular at any restaurant or coffee shop or grocery store. I didn't bother to learn the history of that place. I didn't build relationships with locals. I just lived in like this little tiny you know, community over here at my college and didn't really interact with the town at all. Honestly, I treated the town like a gas station on, on, my, on my life's road, right? Like, oh, this is just a place that I'm checking in, you know, to get, you know, to get, a, to get a drink and use the bathroom or whatever, but I'm not really here to put down roots. So it's no wonder that that place never felt like home to me. It's no wonder that I didn't really look forward to, man, spending the holidays there, or I didn't, I didn't tell anybody, like, yeah, come visit me in Farmville, you know? Like, and you're like, well, I've been to Farmville. I know why I didn't tell people that, right? Uh, Farmville, as big as it sounds. That's what I tell everybody. Um, right? I, I didn't put down roots, and that kept me from thriving. Guys, roots are a gift from God. Roots enable you to form relationships. One of the reasons that so many of us had such strong relationships in college was because we were with the same group of people in the same place for four or five years. Roots enable you to form relationships. Roots enable you to make a difference in your community. A lot of us long to be a part of making the world a better place, but we're, we're undercut in doing that because we move so much. You can't even know a city until you've lived there for two years. Right? It takes time to understand the history of your town. It takes time to understand who the key players are and, and where is their spiritual need. But unfortunately, we, so many of us move so often that we never can really make a major difference. It's been said, and I found this to be true, that we consistently overestimate what we can accomplish in one year and underestimate what we can accomplish in five. The truth is, if you want to make a difference in this community, the best thing you could do would, would be here for a couple years. I mean, that would be this. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to have some great skill set. You just have to be here for like more than 12 months, okay? Roots also teach us to find satisfaction in Christ. They teach us to find satisfaction in Christ. So many young professionals move from city to city looking for that perfect culture that's going to satisfy them. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have done this. It's like, well, Charlottesville's pretty cool, but I'm sort of done with this scene. I went here to college or whatever. I'm going to go to Raleigh. Right? Or, oh, Raleigh's pretty cool, but now I'm going to go to Charlotte. Oh, Charlotte's pretty cool, but I'm going to go to Austin, Texas, the mecca of young professionals, right? Or if you're really cool, you go to Portland, and then we all judge you, right? Uh, we're like, don't go to Portland. Anyway, yeah, we, it's just so easy. It's so easy for young professionals to move from city to city thinking that the next one is going to do it. The next really cool apartment complex, the next really great downtown scene, the next coffee house, like that's going to be what satisfies me. But when you get there, you realize that every city has pros and cons. There is no perfect city out there. And even if you love your city, I love Charlottesville. Last night, Meredith and I drove eight minutes to a French restaurant, ate dinner, and then walked 15 yards and watched a ballet. You're like, you are very cultured. I don't know how it happened, okay? Right? We love this town, but it's not perfect. There's plenty of things about this town that don't do it for me. 
But if we just move, we just uproot and move every, every two years when a town kind of runs out of excitement, you'll, you'll never make a difference there. You'll never form good relationships. And basically what you're doing is you're looking for a fulfillment and a satisfaction that a city and a culture was never designed to give you. Christ is the only one that can satisfy you ultimately. And if you're satisfied in him, you're empowered to put down roots. Because you can say, hey, Charlottesville doesn't have to be perfect. My city doesn't have to be perfect because my satisfaction is in Christ. A recent Gallup poll found that the United States is one of the least rooted countries in the world and that millennials are the least rooted of the least rooted. Okay, so the United States is like in the top 10 least rooted countries in the world and of the United States, millennials are the least rooted of the least rooted. So it shouldn't surprise us that the general social survey found that the number of Americans with no close friends, so no one that they said I could confide in or I, have, I don't have any close friends, has tripled since 1985. Do you know what else has increased since 1985? Moving. Everybody moved. Before, I mean, back in like my dad grew up in the same place. His parents were from there. His parents were from there. You just didn't move that much. It wasn't as easy. You couldn't just get a U-Haul. Your job wasn't remote, so you could just work from like Virginia today and like Maryland tomorrow, and they don't care as long as you log on to your Slack, you know, whatever. All of you are like, that's my life, right? <laughs> we, we just, as a culture, we've become so much more mobile, and that has some, that has some serious consequences, right? We, we move a lot, and it makes it really hard to develop deep relationships. It makes it really hard to really invest in and see a city changed. God created you to put down roots. We see that all the way back in Genesis 2. We see that all the way through the Bible. So how do you practically start doing that? Well, let me give you two super practical points. You ready? Here's number one, not very profound. Don't move. Don't move. I know, I went to seminary for that point. Don't move, okay? Uh, just work hard to stay in the same apartment or townhouse or home for like a couple years, right? For a couple years. Staying in the same neighborhood is like miracle grow on the roots of relationship. It just is. And I, I learned this the hard way. So Meredith and I lived in Raleigh-Durham, the Raleigh-Durham area, before moving up here for six years. Do you know how many places we lived in in those six years? Five. We lived in five different places, and we worked really hard to develop ministry to our neighbors. I mean, super hard. But it didn't work except in one place. And do you know where it worked? The one apartment we were in for two years instead of one year. And honestly, most of our meaningful relationships in that apartment complex didn't develop until year two. Because we, we all get this, right? It just takes time. It takes time to build trust with our neighbors. It takes time to even meet our neighbors, Right? You, you need time to see people out at the mailbox or to see people at a community function and then, you know, work gets crazy for you, work gets crazy for them, family stuff happens, you don't see each other for like three and a half months and then it gets nice outside again. You're like, oh, you're still alive. That's great, man. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> I didn't know if you moved or died. I don't know what happened, you know? We feel that way on our street. Like, we love our, our street. We've gotten to know almost all of our neighbors and we saw them so much over the fall and we were like, man, this is amazing. We're living in such great community. We haven't seen anyone for months. Like it's just got nasty outside and you don't see people as much. We, you just need time in a neighborhood to be able to form trust and to be able to form relationships and to really start to put roots down. And honestly, to even be able to love your neighbors. We didn't do that well in Raleigh-Durham, but there is a family that did. Our friends Matt and Catherine Allison. I think we have a picture of them. Do we have? Yeah, look at Matt and Catherine Allison. Okay, so Matt and Catherine are awesome. I served on pastoral staff with Matt at our last church. 
and they had deep roots in the Raleigh-Durham community. I mean, a lot, some of you know them. They just, man, they love their neighbors well. They're invested in a number of meaningful community ministries. And about a year and a half ago, they sensed God calling them to be missionaries. And they wrestled with it because they had a lot of relationships in Raleigh. But they eventually realized, like, man, this is what God is calling us to do. So as a sacrifice, they ripped up their roots in Raleigh, and they moved to Malawi, Africa to be missionaries. I mean, and they had to leave a lot behind. They had a dog that they had to get rid of. All, their kids had to sell all their toys. Well, sell. They probably, who buys kids' toys, right? They gave them away, right? They had to uproot from Raleigh, and that was a sacrifice because they had rooted there. But you know what they did as soon as they got to Malawi? They started putting roots down. Right? Because they don't want to be in Malawi for like 12 or 18 months. They're like, hey, if we're going to be here, we're going to be here. So they started learning the culture. They started learning the language. They have their kids in the schools. They're starting to appreciate the food there. They love the weather. They're like, man, the weather is way better here than in America. You should come to Malawi. Right? The Allisons understood that part of thriving is about putting down roots. And they were willing because God was calling them to rip up their roots, but they counted the cost. I'm not saying there's no legitimate reason to move. There are legitimate reasons to move. Some of you are in a medical profession where you literally have to be in a place for like 12 or 24 months at a time. Some of you are maybe in a really horrible apartment situation and you like need to move because there's black mold or something. I don't know. Right? I've been there. But what I'm saying, I'm not saying there's never a reason to move. I'm saying we need to be more thoughtful about moving. Because I think right now our default is just like, yeah, what does it matter? This is just where I sleep at night. This is just where I cook dinner. I don't really know any of my neighbors. But if we transition to start thinking more like Jesus did, where he said, hey, love your neighbors, serve your neighbors, it should be a big deal for us to move. And can I be really practical? For some of you, that's probably going to mean paying a little bit more in rent that second year. Because that's what apartments do, right? They give you the great introductory rate to get you in, and then they know nobody likes moving their stuff, so then they jack up the cost. I've been there. That's why we move six times. Right? For some of us, it, it just might be like we have to pay the price a little bit to be able to serve the kingdom. That's why Meredith and I worked so hard to buy a house when we moved here. Because we, we, we were just like, you know what, we're not moving to Charlottesville to be here for 18 months. Like, we're moving here for the long haul, and so we're just going to put down roots in our neighborhood. Like, we're just saying, this is where we are. Come hell or high water, we're not moving. And it's made a huge difference. It's honestly made us feel more rooted here in Charlottesville than I think we ever did in Raleigh. And we've developed really great friendships with our neighbors, and it might be because they're like, well, they're going to be here. I better get to know them. You know, like their kid is going to consistently come and run, try to play with my dog, so I need to know who they are um, so I can know when, they're, when their kids are coming out. Anyway, so, man, just don't move if you can help it. Don't move. Here's the second practical way that you can, you can be rooted. Man, become a member of the church. Become a member of the church. So, you can be in one of three relationships with Center Church. You can be attending, you can be connected, and you can be committed. If you're attending, it means that, you, you know, you've come to some services on Sunday. Um, if you're connected, it means that in addition to coming to some services, you've, man, started visiting a community group or joined one of our volunteer service teams. And if you're committed, it means that you're doing those things, but you've gone through our membership process and you have covenanted together with the other members of this church. One of the best ways that you can start to put down roots here is to become a member of this church. Like for some of you, you've been around for a while and I think you like what we're doing here and hopefully you think the preaching's okay and <laughs> you at least really like Justin, right? And um, man, you're like, I think this is where God wants me. The next step, it, it's not natural to, to stay in an in-between space. 
we are all in different, different places. And membership is a commitment. So I never pressure anybody into it. But if you're like, this is where God has me, you need to start moving towards membership because the Bible has no category for someone who is following Jesus but not committed to a local church. It has a category for people that are in transition and maybe you just moved and you're trying to figure things out. You're still not sure about me, what we're doing. I get it, right? It takes time. But if, if you're like, this is where I'm going to be, you should move towards membership because it changes how you think about the church. It just does. Think about it like the difference between a rental car and when you own a car, Okay. So when you get a rental car, you don't care if there's an engine coming from the, or a noise coming from the engine. Sarah Claiborne's like, I know it, right? I got you right now, right? I mean, you don't care. You don't think about if the oil needs to be changed. If you jump a curb on accident, it doesn't bother you that much, right? You're just like, as long as it gets me where I need to go, like, I don't really care. But think about the difference when you own the car. Now, all of a sudden, if there's a bad sound coming from the engine, you take the mechanic. When the oil needs to be changed, you get the oil changed. If you grind your rim across a, cu a curb, you're like, oh, right? Why? Because it belongs to you. And, and you want it to run well, so you want to take care of it. Well, that's kind of how it is with becoming a member of this church. When you become a member of Center, you move from sort of a renting posture to an owning posture. And you say, hey, I want to I be a part of what's happening here. I want to be a part of this vision. I want to help make this a reality. I want to treat this thing like it really, really matters. For some of you, that might be the next step for you. We actually have a membership class that's coming up on March 31st following our service. You can come and learn more about the church and take a next step. So if you want to do that, you can go to centerseville.com backslash membership and read all, all kinds of things about it and ask any questions that you have, okay? God created you to put down roots. Two ways you do that are by not moving and by becoming a member. That's the first purpose. Here's the second purpose. You were created to work. You were created to work. Here's the second purpose. We all get intuitively that our work has a lot to do with our well-being. Our work has a ton to do with our well-being. And one of my issues when I graduated college was I had an unhealthy relationship with my job. Sometimes I asked too much of it. I wanted it to fulfill me and I wanted it to be perfect. And other times I demonized it. I was like, oh, I hate my job. Why do I have to do this? Right? Some of you, I've had these conversations with some of you where you say, well, I'm just a medical equipment salesman or I'm just a second grade teacher, or I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm not a pastor like you. I don't do something really meaningful like you do, right? Or others of you probably feel like, man, work is just a, a, a result of sin, right? If, if when I get to heaven, I'm just going to be hanging out, right? We're just going to be playing golf all the time, me and Jesus, right? He's probably a scratch golfer. <sighs> I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail, but I could, okay? But the first mention of work in the Bible is in Genesis 2, verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This was before there was any sin in the world. Which means that work is not the result of sin, but work is core to the fabric of creation. God created you to work. And if you look really carefully at verse 15, you'll find out that God not only created you to work, kind of randomly so you'd have something to do, but God created you to work so that you might worship him, you, so that you might worship him. You see, in our English translation, it, it looks like the narrator's being repetitive, doesn't it? Verse 15 says, he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And you're like, it seems like he's just saying the same thing. Like, work, it doesn't mean, you know. But if you understand the Hebrew phrases a little bit, you see there's actually something really profound going on here. See, Old Testament scholar John Salehammer points out that the word being used for work in our English translation is the same root word in the Old Testament for worship. 
And this exact same phrase, this exact same phrase in Hebrew is translated worship and keep it in Deuteronomy 30. Which means that Adam didn't just worship God by reading his Bible and praying in the Garden of Eden. He worshiped God by doing the work that God had given him to do. Worship and keep it. God put Adam into the garden to worship him by keeping the garden. Does that make sense? Work isn't just a a random thing that we have to do to put bread on the table. Work is something God has given us to glorify him. And we do that when we work in three ways, okay? Three ways we glorify God with our work. Number one, when we work with excellence. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. So sloppy, half-hearted work doesn't glorify God. But when you do your work with excellence because you want to honor God, it does glorify him. Second, if you work to love your neighbor, if you work to love your neighbor. You see, God often blesses the people in our community through our work. The reformer Martin Luther understood this. He wrote, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And he does. He does give us our daily bread. He does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, and the person who prepared our meal. Right? When you work, God uses your work to serve your neighbor. Finally, if you work by faith, if you work by faith, you see, the truth is you could do those previous two things for all the wrong motives. Right? You could work excellently because you know that if you, if you produce good work, you'll get a promotion and you want to get a promotion. Right? You could, man, oh gosh, how many companies are there out there that have started charities or 501c3s? Not because they really care about the issue, but because they want the PR boost. Right? It's possible to do excellent work and to do work that serves your neighbor for the wrong motives. But it's also possible to do it in response to what God has done for you. It's possible to say, hey, I want to work excellently and I want to serve my neighbor because Christ laid down his life for me. And if that's what you're doing, your work is not pointless. Your, your work is not just to put food on the table, but your work glorifies God. Let me give you a practical example of this that has to do with a taco truck, Okay. Taco truck example. I'm very excited about this example. Okay, so there's a taco truck in the Pantops area called Tacos Gomez. Has anyone been to Tacos Gomez? All right, I can just end the illustration now, and you're like, I understand what you mean, okay? Tacos Gomez makes fantastic tacos at a very reasonable price with fantastic customer service, okay? I don't know the owners of Tacos Gomez. I don't know if they love Jesus, and I don't know if they do all that they do in response to what he's done for them. But if they did, they would be a perfect example of how you can worship God at work. How so? Well, they make excellent tacos. Their tacos glorify God, okay? Can I get an amen, right? Their tacos glorify God. They also serve and love their neighbors in a couple ways. Number one, they create local jobs. So other people can work for them and make an honest living. Number two, they give people in my area, in the Pantops area, a place to go and enjoy really good food. And they actually even create a little bit of community because once you go to Tacos Gomez, you go back to Tacos Gomez, right? So there's like this little community of regulars that go to Tacos Gomez. It might not seem like running a taco truck is all that spiritual, but if you understand Genesis 2, you understand that it can be extraordinarily spiritual. Right? And if you understand your job not as, oh, I'm just a blank or I'm just a blank, but no, I'm glorifying God and what I'm doing, it will change how you think about work. You are not just a second grade teacher. God is working through you to bless the children of our community. You are not just a medical equipment salesman. God is working through you to care for patients in our hospitals. 
You are not just a stay-at-home parent. God is working through you to raise a whole generation for Christ. There is nothing in this world, in this economy, that is just a blank. That is just a blank. If done excellently, if done to serve your neighbor, and if done by faith, you are glorifying God in your work. And if you start to think about your work that way, it will change you. And rather than be like, oh, I have to go to work again. I'm so tired of my job. Even when it's not perfect, because no job is perfect, you can say, man, God, thank you for this. Thank you that I can go and serve you in this way. You were created to work. That's the second purpose. Here's the third purpose. You were created to live in community. You were created to live in community. Community with other people and community with God. Let's start with community with other people. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I hope you can appreciate how much dramatic tension is, is present in verse 18. After a flurry of creative activity in chapter 1 and chapter 2, where God looked back and said, Good, 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 very good, he stops and says, Not good. This is a big moment. This is the conflict moment in the story so far. Something isn't good. You also realize what a big deal this is because of the lengths to which God goes to solve this problem. I mean, he brings every creature to Adam. How long must that have taken, right? Like, I'll call that thing a cat. Nope. I'll call thing that, that's a guinea pig. Nope. I'll call, you know, it's just like on and on and on. I mean, this is a massive ordeal. And then to solve this problem, God created an entire new being. He took a rib out of Adam and formed it into a woman. Man, the text is making the point, you were not created to be by yourself. And notice, Adam lived in paradise, had the best job anyone could imagine, and had a perfect relationship with God. And he still needed community with other people. And if Adam needed that, that means you need that. Because you don't have as good of a job as Adam did. You don't live as a good, I love Charlottesville, but it's not the Garden of Eden. And you do not have as good of a relationship with God as Adam did. If Adam needed community, you and I need community. And what's interesting is you don't just need community generally. You need community personally. And this text shows us that. You see that word helper where God says, it is not good that this man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Sometimes people get tripped up by that. Because it, you know, it sort of feels like, oh, is, it, did God make Eve as like a handmaiden of Adam? Is she just like kind of his servant? Does that mean like women are weak, something like that? And I totally understand like why people would, would you know, be offended by that. But if you understand the Hebrew language, what you realize is that if anyone's being called weak in this passage, it's not Eve, it's Adam. Because that word helper is, is most often used in the Old Testament to refer to military reinforcements. So here's the idea. You're in a little army, you're outnumbered five to one, you're about to be destroyed, and in come military reinforcements and deliver you. Do you know who that word is most often used of? God. In Psalm 54.4, God says, O Israel, I am your helper, I am your deliverer. You see, if anyone's being called weak here, it's not Eve, it's Adam. God looks at Adam in perfect, in perfect creation, nothing is wrong, there's no sin in the world, and he still says, this isn't good, you need reinforcements. This isn't good. You need reinforcements. We were not created to be alone. And haven't you, haven't you sensed this? Haven't you felt this in your life? If you're a parent, like, man, I just need some people to encourage me and to pray for me and to babysit for me, okay? Like, haven't you felt this if you're a young couple? You're like, gosh, I just need some people that have walked a little further 
in front of me that have been married maybe for a while that can just encourage me and show us how to figure out the kind of dicey waters that can be relationships. Right? If you're a grad student, have you, haven't you sensed this? Isn't it so easy as a grad student to just get absorbed in your little bubble, right? Like all there is is this little tiny piece of academia that you live in. And you just need some people to be like, hey, did you know there's actually a world outside of UVA hospital? And you're like, are you serious? That's amazing. You know, like you just need somebody that can remind you that there's more out there than just what you're doing. When I reflect on the seasons of my life, when I was thriving the most spiritually, do you know what's always true? I was in deep Christian community. We need each other. We need reinforcements. Adam needed them before there's anything wrong in the world. And if he needed them then, then we certainly need them now. But we don't need just any reinforcements. We need a specific kind of reinforcements. And this is what I love. The Bible's so rich. This text says, I will make a helper fit for him. That phrase, fit for him, is actually two Hebrew words that if you translated them literally would say, I will make a helper like opposite him. Like opposite, you're like, I'm glad I don't have to translate the Bible, right? What does that mean? What if, how can you be like and opposite? Can you be those two things at the same time? Well, you can. Think of it this way. Think about two puzzle pieces that fit together. Puzzle pieces don't fit together because they're identical. In fact, if they were, they wouldn't fit. But they also don't fit together just, just because they're randomly different. They fit together because they're different in the right way. They're alike, but different. See what I'm saying? What God is saying is that we need people who are like opposite us. We need people that have some of the same core commitments that we do, right? People who are following after Jesus as Lord, right? People who want to increasingly obey the Bible and learn God's word, but are also different from us in a myriad of other ways, right? And we see this principle fleshed out here in the context of marriage. Like what God is saying is that man and woman are reinforcing one another and playing different roles in marriage. But that also holds true in Christian community. You see, one of the dangers that we face is if we overcome the hurdles of isolation that we face in the United States, do you know the kind of people we tend to seek community with? People that are just like us. Haven't you noticed that? You kind of look around the room, you're like, how did we all end up being 26? Right? Like everybody, it's like, it's just everybody looks the same. But that's not what we need. See, if you are an army full of foot soldiers, you don't need more foot soldiers, you need some archers, Right? You need somebody that's different from you that can challenge you and encourage you in ways that someone exactly like you can't. You need someone that is like opposite you, which is why we talk so much about community groups and volunteer serving teams because community groups and serving teams are two of the best ways at this church to get into relationship with people that are like opposite you, that have a similar commitment to the lordship of Jesus and want to help you grow in your faith but are different in a lot of, diff- in a lot of other ways, have different backgrounds, have different interests, have different, you know, are in different life stages. If you are not on a volunteer serving team or in a community group, can I be honest, you are missing out. And if you don't feel like you're thriving, that's probably one of the reasons why. Because you don't have a community of people to reinforce you. You don't have a community of people to love you, to pray for you, to challenge you. You need community. If Adam needed community, you need community. And you can take a step towards that today. We have an event right after this service called Starting Point. Starting point is for anybody here that is new or that has been around a while but isn't connected and you want to learn about community groups and you want to learn about volunteer serving teams. You literally can come to that right after the service. We'll feed you. It's very fun and casual and we can help you take a step. That might be your step today. You were, commu- you were created for community with other people. But you were also created for community with God. You were also created for community with God. The entire chapter points to this. Honestly, people that are from Eastern cultures find Genesis 2 very uncomfortable. 
Because Eastern cultures, folks from Muslim countries, have a vision of God where God is very holy and reverent, he's very distant, he's very high and far away, and it's considered almost profane to talk to him like a friend. But Genesis 2 is immensely intimate. I mean, God takes the dust and forms Adam and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. I mean, that is extremely intimate. Then he plants a garden and puts Adam in it. Then he knows Adam so well, he says, your relational needs are not being met, and I'm going to create someone else for you. Right? Then he brings Adam and Eve together as like the officiant of the first marriage. Genesis 2 screams intimacy with God. And it, it actually screams it in a way that you might not pick up on. The author of Genesis 2 uses a different phrase for God than he did in Genesis 1. You see, in Genesis 1, the author used the word Elohim, which is the Hebrew word that describes God kind of generally and as high and exalted, kind of a transcendent creator God. But when you get into Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, if you look at your Bibles, it changes. You've got that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord God, right, in your Bibles. That's because the author is using a different word. He's using the word Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim is the relational covenant name of God. It is the name that God gave to Israel to say, I am your God and you are my people. It is a name of intimacy. So James Ryan is the president of the University of Virginia. Saying Elohim would be like calling him Mr. President. Saying Yahweh Elohim would be like calling him James or Jim. One is reverential, right? The other is intimate, close, and relational. You and I were created for a relationship, not just with Elohim, I believe in you, God, you're out there somewhere, I nod my head to, to you, but for Yahweh Elohim. We were created for an intimate, personal relationship with God. But unfortunately, that relationship has been damaged. It's been damaged. Remember back in verse 17, when God said that Adam could eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, in Genesis 3, unfortunately, Adam and Eve disobeyed the one command that God gave them. They rejected God's word over them. And the consequence was that they were exiled from the garden and their relationship with God changed forever. You and I haven't taken from a forbidden tree, but we've all done this in our own way. We've rejected God's word in other ways. We've, we've decided that we want to operate according to our standard of sexual purity or we want to do with our money what we want to do, or we live our lives with ourselves at the center instead of God. All of those are rejections of God's word, just like Adam and Eve rejected him. And if we're alienated from God, if you're alienated from God, none of the other purposes of creation will be accomplished. Your attempt to put down roots will just turn into tribalism. You'll become snobby about where you live, and you'll become condescending towards other people. Your relationship with work will become unhealthy, right? You'll either ask it to be too much for you and you'll worship it and you'll work way too many hours or, and you'll just degrade it. And you'll be like, ah, man, this isn't worth anything. And you will pursue me first relationships instead of sacrificial community. You see, without a relationship with God that we are created for, everything else folds in on itself. And many of us sense this chasm, right? Many of us sense this, this distance between us and God and we try to deal with it in a couple ways. Some of us take what I would call the religious approach. So we, we attend church and, and we do nonprofit work and we try, to, we try to do good deeds. Some of us take the irreligious approach where we just sort of reject the legitimacy of the chasm altogether or we, we refuse to believe in God. 
But the Bible says that neither of those approaches makes any difference to the chasm. That, that there is a way for us to be reconciled to God, but it's not through religion or religion. It's through the way that Yahweh made himself. You see, even when you turned away from God, he never stopped being Yahweh to you. Which is why, when there was no other way, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we rejected God, he never stopped being Yahweh to us. So he sent his son Jesus to bear the penalty of sin that belongs to us. Jesus traded places with you on the cross. And he paid the penalty. He suffered the consequence of your rejection of God's word. So that through his resurrection, you could be reconciled to your creator. You could be brought back into a relationship with Yahweh Elohim. How does that happen? Through repentance and faith. Repentance is acknowledging, Lord, I have lived like my own God. I have rejected your word and I'm sorry. Faith means you turn to Christ and you ask God to receive you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done and you follow him as Lord. You see, so many of us are not living, are not thriving the way that God created us to thrive. And if you aren't reconciled to him, if you aren't in a relationship with Yahweh Elohim, with the Lord God, your Lord God, none of those other purposes will make a difference. But if you are, if you are in a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, you can start to put down roots you can start to view your work as worship. And you can form the community that you were created to live in. God has made a way for us to thrive. And he's inviting us to step into it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you are not just Elohim. You're not just a distant, transcendent God, but that you are Yahweh Elohim. That you created us, you knit us together, our mother's womb, and you love us and desire to have a personal relationship with us. Lord, I pray that those here today that don't know that relationship, they don't know that intimacy, God would find that today. I pray for those of us that maybe have known that in the past, but have wandered from you, have been away from your your bride, the church, and that we would turn back. I pray for those of us who, Father, are walking in that but are just weary and are just tired, that, Lord, we would be renewed and we would be strengthened by your love and by your presence. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ. We pray all these things in his name.